We honor camaraderie as you never left a fallen brother or sister behind. Others' lives were as important to you as your own. At risk to yourself, and without a second thought, you ran dauntlessly into the field of battle to pull your brother or sister from the trenches, carrying them to safety. We honor you. We honor humility. As through your strength, you still show gentleness, never boasting or prideful, but humble in service and character, showing us that true heroes are not self-proclaimed, but silently seen. We honor you. We honor greatness, as today we remember many men and women who gave their lives in service to this nation. They are our fathers, mothers, husbands, neighbors, sons, cousins, daughters, brothers, friends, and heroes. We honor you. Well, this is a weekend when we're able to really reflect back and honor those who have died protecting our freedom. And uh, each Memorial Day, and it's our custom in our family to find a, a military grave site that we can go to and, and we can think and talk and, and reflect. Um, but, you know, we also reflect on the following, because you can't really die for your country without being willing to first follow something. And so this morning, our focus is on following. And so if you would, uh, take a look in your Bible at Acts chapter 19. And this morning, uh, I want to say that we're, we're more kind of looking at a story. That's what we're doing, walking through a story this morning and just maybe commentating a little bit on the story. So I hope you'll kind of sit back and enjoy hearing a, a story this morning. Now, guys, before I say this story, I want you to know that uh, uh, this could cause you to question my manhood just a little bit uh, in this first story. So um, I did, however, want, I want you to balance it with knowing that I did watch a, a, a couple uh, Steven Seagal movies this past week. So uh, this kind of, it will balance out. But uh, over on Chimney Knock Road near my house when I'm driving home, I have noticed over the last several weeks that uh, um, a little family of ducks has been born. And uh, I watched as the little ducks, you know, they were little tiny, like in my palm, kind of big. And now they're, they look like about teenage ducks uh, running around. It happens fast in the duck world, I guess. Um, and so I'm, I've watched, every time I drive by, they're always near the road, but they're never in the road. Now, I have not counted the ducks to account for all of them yet. Uh, hopefully none of them have been hit, but I watch them near the road, and I'll watch... Uh, 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 like a mama or daddy duck, I, I can't tell the difference. I'll watch them uh, out in the road, maybe a, a step or two, and the others following, but never going past that mama uh, or daddy duck out there. Uh, and so I've watched this, and I, I've just been really impressed watching these ducks follow. And, uh, and I, I want to be honest, I've said a few times, oh man, they are so cute out there as well. Now, again, balance that with the Steven Seagal movies. Um, there, uh, but uh, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, but following is what's happening. These little baby ducks are following their parents, and somehow they know what to do. Uh, they have some different communication style than us. In our family, you know, we use the words, but somehow they communicate and they know what following looks like, and they are protected. 
And so this morning, as we're walking through this story, I really want to ask a question. What does following look like? What does it really look like? In our Christian world, if you come and you're around this church thing enough, you're going to hear the words follow quite a bit. We're going to talk about following Christ. We're going to talk about following God's mission. Uh, We're going to talk about following the things he wants us to do. The question is, what does following look like? What does it look like? And so there's this neat story in Acts that we're just going to walk through, and every once in a while we'll just pause for a second, and we'll grab one little thing that happens when we choose to follow. All right, you got it? Acts chapter 19. We're going to be in verse 23 to start. So if you've got your Bibles, take a look there. It'll be up on the screen as well. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. Here's what it says. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Well, let's pause there for a second. Notice how the first verse, it says, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, it, at this time in the, in the whole uh, Christian movement, in the church growth, uh, Christians didn't run around being called Christians at this time, and, and there wasn't a lot of places that were called churches at this time. The movement here, especially outside of Jerusalem, uh, was a movement that was not dominated by Christ or the belief in Christ. It was a growing thing, and it was a minority in most of these towns. And so here in the town of Ephesus, there arose this great disturbance about the way. The way was a simply uh, it was a way that they chose to to call believers, followers of the way. Every once in a while you might hear a phrase like that used, maybe as a title for a church or, or things like that. Well, this is kind of where it came from. The early Christians were called followers of the way. It was a little bit of a covert name here because there was still danger in being a Christian and being publicly being a Christian at this time. And so there's a great disturbance about the way, meaning the followers of the way, something was going on with Christians or with the followers of Christ that were causing a little bit of an uproar. He goes on to start talking about what this was. It says, a a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Basically, uh, this guy, Demetrius, his whole job, he he made statues. Now, that was his job. And what he did was he made statues of Artemis. Now, Artemis was a goddess. Now, Artemis was really a goddess of fertility, but if you look back and you research her, you will find that she kind of expanded her role. And as people believed in her, they started praying to Artemis Artemis, for all kinds of things. So it wasn't just the goddess of fertility in the sense that they were praying to her for good childbirth and safety and health and all that kind of stuff. She was one they started praying to for everything. If your crops needed some water or needed some growth and some bright sunlight, you would pray to Artemis. If you wanted favor in your life, better employment, better favor with the person that employed you, you would be praying to Artemis. And so it became very, very dominant at this time in Ephesus for your prayers to all go to Artemis. And so he, this Demetrius, one of many people, who would make these little idols that would sit in the homes. And so as they sat in the homes, people would be reminded when they walked into one room that they needed to pray to Artemis for whatever they were thinking about and whatever they thought they needed. In fact, it got to a point where historians tell us that a family wouldn't just have a statue of Artemis in a front room, they would have them in every room, in every place. 
if they went out to the fields to work, that there would be some type of maybe mobile statue or something that was out there. These idols were everywhere, and they would pray to Artemis. Tens of thousands of these idols all over Ephesus. But now remember, Ephesus was a hub town, which meant people came to Ephesus and from all over the place to do buying and trading and all kinds of stuff. And so Ephesus not only supplied uh, these, these idols for their own town, but they were able to supply it to any travelers that were coming in. They went back to their own region. So you can see why Demetrius here, it says, brought in no small business. Demetrius was probably a pretty wealthy man, and he was probably connected with other people that were probably fairly wealthy because this was a thriving business in these idols. I've got a little picture of uh, Artemis for you up here. There she goes. Yeah, isn't she beautiful? Yeah, she was also known, uh, this is true, she was known as the mini-breasted one. Um, I'll let you figure that out. Let's, let's take a look and continue. Verse 25. He called them together, all the craftsmen, um, along with the workers in related trades. So this is everybody that's, that's around the business. And he said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are not gods at all. Now you can see this guy, he, this, this guy Demetrius, he cares nothing about Christ. He probably knows very little about the Christian movement. All he knows is this guy Paul has come into his region and he has started to make a big fuss about what his livelihood is, uh, is really bogus. That Paul has come in and said, as, as Demetrius says here, uh, take a look at it in verse, he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. And he's saying really, hey, Demetrius, you make a lot of money off this, but you know what? Your whole god system with Artemis, it's fake. It's bunk. It's nothing. Now, you could see how somebody like Demetrius, who is making a pretty good income and probably even believes in this Artemis stuff, you can see why that would probably tick him off pretty good. I mean, think about your own profession here. If somebody waltzed in and just said, look, your profession, you know, you're, you're making money on a nothing. You're making money on junk or you're selling bill of sales to people. That wouldn't make you feel too well. I mean, as a pastor... Um, I know when I hear the phrase, when somebody comes and says, well, I believe in God, but I, I just don't believe in organized religion. Um, somehow people feel like the freedom to say that to a pastor. <laughs> and I say, well, oh, just so happens I'm employed by one of those organizations. Um, I know what they're getting at. But uh, yeah, there's a little bit of a, a sting when you hear Demetrius. I mean, he is ticked about this. He has brought everyone together that has anything to do with these, these statues, with this livelihood, he has brought them all together, and he has said, it's time for us to do something about it. Let's read further. Verse 27. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So you see here, he is saying up front, look, our business is going to take a major hit, um, but he also, now whether you believe him or not here, he's also saying, look, and the goddess Artemis is going to be discredited 
as well. Now, on what level is the business more important than the Artemis here for him? I don't know. But we do know in Ephesus, Artemis was it, period. The percentage here would have been extreme on the people that followed and believed in Artemis. Very small minority that would have believed in Christ at this time. And we're talking about uh, not too far, maybe, maybe just a, a period of time in the 30-year period after Christ had uh, ascended up into heaven. And so not too far here. And Ephesus is, is pretty much completely secular here. Take a look at verse 28. Let's continue on with the story. When they heard this, this is all the craftsmen, and this is anybody related to this business of Artemis. When they heard this, they were furious and became shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. And so right away, the craftsmen obviously had a good connection with the whole city because we find that the whole city of Ephesus was now frustrated and upset because the craftsmen obviously had gone out and started to spread the word on what Paul was doing. And I'm sure they did not spread it in a very favorable way to Paul because the whole town was upset. About 250,000 people lived in Ephesus at the town. That was a major, major metropolis. Now, that's roughly Greensboro, right? That, that size. And Greensboro is just one city in the U.S. Ephesus, 250,000 would have been, that would have been a big city, a big hub of operation here. And so when it says the whole city, could be an, an expression the author is, author is using here, but it's getting at the, the issue that there were a lot of people that were now upset about that. And then it goes on to say, take a look at it in verse 29. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Well, let's stop for just a second there because they introduced some new characters here. Gaius and Aristarchus, his traveling companions here. Basically, what this is, Gaius and Aristarchus would have been uh, the followers. He would have been like the apprentice to Paul. Because every young Jewish boy, by about the time they were aged six to seven years old, they would have had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they would have had the Pentateuch memorized. I mean, think about that. Your kids that are six or seven, having that much scripture memorized, it would have just been part of the upbringing. No video games, no, no uh, TV, none of that type of stuff. You know, the Word of God would have been what they would have studied over and over and over. Somewhere around that seven to eight years old, if somebody was uh, towards, I guess you could call the top of their class, they would kind of move on and they would start to be able to study more, now under instructors, and they would study a bit more, somewhere to around 12, 13, 14 years old. And they would actually memorize the entire Old Testament, have it all memorized. Uh, anyone that was studying in that school, that would have been a requirement. Can you imagine that? Having the entire Old Testament of your Bible memorized? Yeah, 36, 39 books memorized. Now, there was a select number after that age, somewhere around 13, 14, 15 years old, there was a select number that would have actually been chosen to continue on in their study. They would have been chosen as ones that one day could be rabbis. And so, uh, in this choosing... Uh, after they're chosen, they would try to assign themselves to a rabbi or to somebody so that they could continue further education. That is who Gaius and Aristarchus are. They're at that stage, and they have assigned themselves, or they've been assigned to Paul. 
And so they might have felt, well, hey, Paul's got it going on. He's got a great reputation. This is the guy I want to, to hang around and be near. And he now becomes their mentor, and they are his apprentice. So they're going to follow him everywhere they go. So when we ask the question, what does it take to follow, we learn one thing really quick. In following, it takes being attached to somebody who can teach us where we want to go. In following, it becomes attached to somebody who has already been there, who definitely has a level of understanding and knowledge who can teach us. Now, first and foremost, for us, that has to be Christ. We have to plug in and stay connected and let Christ constantly be our mentor. But think about your life for a second. Think about your profession. Think about your role as mother or dad or other roles. Now think about somebody who could speak into those areas. Think about somebody who could offer something to your life. And that, Now, you're not 14 to 16 years old like these guys at the time, but nonetheless, wherever we're at, when we think about following and following well, we have to think about, is there somebody around us that could speak into the areas of my life? For, for me, there's a pastor up in Chicago that uh, we became close to. Um, and so there's a friendship there, but there's also this mentoring, being able to call him up. And so far in five months, I've been able to call him and say, hey, let me run this by you. And there's been times where he said, hey, you're on the right track, that sounds good. Or there's other times where he's gone, I don't quite know what you're thinking. Why would you do that? Um, it's this mentoring and talking back and forth. And so Gaius and Aristarchus are attached to Paul's, and they grab Gaius and Aristarchus, maybe Paul wasn't available at the time, and they rush into the theater. This would have been the big amphitheater style. You've often seen pictures of these. They rush as one person into the theater, and they take Gaius and Aristarchus, and they're the ones that they stand up front. Look at verse 30. Let's continue on. Paul says here, Paul wanted to uh, appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, these weren't Christians, even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Now, it doesn't tell us in the scripture that Gaius and Aristarchus are in grave danger and they're about to be killed. But we get this image when they don't want Paul to go in. When they're telling Paul, look, don't go in there. This is a bad, bad situation. Gaius and Aristarchus are just associated with you. You're the main culprit here. Don't go in there. It'll be bad, bad news for you. So you have this crowd now in this theater, and they're looking now at their, these traveling companions. Now imagine when these guys signed up for this, and the next thing they know, they're standing in this theater with an angry mob looking down on them, and the scripture says they're still ch chanting, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. I remember when uh, in 2000, it was my first kind of full-time pastor, and I'd worked with youth ministry for a while, but full-time, we had moved to Arizona, and we moved in on a Thursday, and we had church that Sunday. Monday morning, the pastor took off for his vacations for two weeks, so I was kind of the, you know, the guy in charge for two weeks, and uh, my first day, been on the job about four days. And uh, we, Monday the office was closed. Tuesday morning I go in at like 8 o'clock, 8.30, I get a phone call from a lady. She doesn't identify herself. She just frantically says, she's across the street. She's making threats to me. I've called the police. I need you to come over here. <laughs> I'm like, okay, welcome to the ministry. Um, and I found out later what had happened was this, this uh, lady across the street uh, uh, was somebody who this lady thought had had an affair with her husband and was uh, yelling threats, um, or at least what she 
uh, interpreted as threats, and uh, so there was this violent yelling across the street. Uh, before the police got there, it actually sprawled into some throwing of objects across the street. Um, I actually just beat the police there um, in that because it was just down the road, and, um, and I thought, man, here we go. This is, uh, I didn't know, this is what I was going to deal with right away, off the bandwagon, uh, you know, fairly green, and I'm going to try to settle a marriage dispute that involves throwing of objects across the street. Gaius and Aristarchus, I mean, they're in this situation, just interns pulled into this, this area. You know, our second thing, when we think about following, when we think about following, we have to understand everything we grab, we learn for a reason. Everything we receive, we learn to put into action. We learn because there might be a time when God is ready right away to say, Tom, step up, make it happen. Make it happen. You learned enough, it's okay. I'll guide you the rest of the way in the things you don't know. But just stand up and go with what you have. Here, these guys had probably followed Paul to one or two other cities. They had to have seen Paul in action a little bit. Paul had talked to them as they walked the road. And so they had to just take what they had learned and now apply the rest and trust that God was going to fill in the gaps here. Let's continue on with the story, verse 32. This is my favorite section here. Listen to how it reads. This is incredible. Verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. They're all in this theater, right? Um, the theater probably, probably held thousands of people. They're all in this theater. They were in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. I mean, that, that's a great passage there. <laughs> that they were so stirred up the city, and people so wanted to be a part of this and rushed to join in, and some of the people had no idea why they were even there. It, one were shouting one thing, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, some another. I'd love to know what was the other thing that they were shouting. Well, I mean, great as Artemis, and then there was other things being shouted, but they, they weren't even quite sure what they were shouting. Some of the people didn't even know why they were there. I mean, could you see them shouting, great as Artemis, great as Artemis, great as Artemis, you know, turning, hey, why again are we here? And first of I don't really know. Somebody said free hot dogs, so I just follow along, and here we are. They, there's this confusion do you know when you want to follow something, there are times when, especially in the Christian life, where people will oppose you and they don't really know anything about what you believe. They don't know. Every once in a while they might hear something on the media, they might see something in a popular TV show or in a song, and they'll take that as fact, and at times they don't understand or maybe even disrespect what we believe. Now, that's not a time for us to get all huffy and puffy about it, but we have to understand it affects. We might have to deal with that type of things at time. You know what? There was a man who dealt with that while he was on a cross. Do you remember Jesus as he dealt with it? Do you know how many people in that crowd probably didn't even quite understand the ramifications of what was happening? We learned that the Pharisees went and they stirred up the crowd, is what the Bible says to us. And people started chanting, crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus turned and he said, hey, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When we follow, sometimes those type of things happen and we're confronted with it. And there are times, I don't know about you, there's times when it's tempting to just kind of throw in the towel or just say, Psh, what are you doing? Forget this. It's not worth it. We use phrases like that. But knowing in following, what does it take to follow? 
Sometimes it takes some opposition that doesn't even know about what we believe. You know what? It's okay. It's okay. The Lord will give you strength to endure and to walk through, and maybe, Lord willing, an open door to witness to them in the process. Let's read further in the stories. Um, so they're shouting one thing. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Verse 33, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the crowd. But when they realized he was, he was, uh, uh, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison about, for about two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So these people were shouting in, in, in this assembly, and then they put Alexander to the front. And uh, when they put Alexander to the front, now remember, this is, in, this is in Ephesus, not Jerusalem. So the dominant number of people here that were worshiping Artemis would not have been Jewish people. They would have been part of the Roman Empire, but Gentiles, not, not Jewish believers. And so the, it, it stands to reason that the, the assembly, the crowd that was chanting, was pretty much a non-Jewish crowd. And so when they pushed Alexander uh, to the front here... Um, they find out, uh, wait a second, this guy isn't one of us. Ooh, one of us. And they just disregard anything he's going to say there. And it says here, I love this, that they shouted in unison for about two hours, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I've told you before, I'm a huge Braves fan. And I can remember the time where I shouted the most for the Braves. It was 1992, and it was a, a National League playoff game. It was the final game of the series, Sid Bream, who was really the slowest man in the history of baseball, was at second base, and Francisco Cabrera, a little-known guy, pinch-hitting at the time, was at the plate. I remember standing in a doorway thinking, well, at least we tied it up, we'll go to extra innings. And then there was, unexpectedly, a hard ground ball single into left field, and Sid Bream motoring around uh, with two outs, motoring around third base, somehow beat the throw just by, just by a niche, beat the throw at home plate, and the Braves won, and which propelled them to move on to the World Series. Now, I was in the doorway when that happened of my office at uh, the church I was working at. The TV was across the room, and it was actually a classroom that had been converted to an office, so pretty decent size. I don't really know what, how the movement occurred. I just know uh, the next place I was was right at the TV, holding the TV like this, chanting great things about the Braves. That was about an exciting moment as it's been for me as a Braves fan in that base hit in the end that won the game. I can tell you, though, I did not chant for the Braves for two hours. <laughs> and I did not grab any other Braves fan. Well, I was in California, so there wasn't any available. But... Uh, <laughs> If I had, I did not grab any Braves fan and chant in unison for two hours. That's what these people are doing here. Can you sense how fired up this crowd is? I mean, this crowd is irate, and they are so angry about what is going on, and they're staring down at Gaius and Aristarchus. I would love to know what if Gaius and Aristarchus were allowed to speak to the audience. Like, what might they have said as 16 year old guys. I mean, they had to have turned to each other at some point and just said, you know, we're dead, I guess. I guess it's over. Um, we've heard about these things for Christians, and I guess uh, this is about to happen for us. Um, you know, I'm sure maybe one of them wanted to stand up to the mic and make one last, you know, evangelical uh, claim to them, you know, just letting you guys know you're, you're all going to hell unless you uh, follow the Lord. Now do what you want with us. Um, 
But Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, I mean, they are in front of an angry, angry crowd, now chanting in unison for two hours. Verse 35, look at this. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is a guardian of the temple of the great goddess Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. Now, hang on just a second. You can see this is the politician guy. This is the city clerk. So you can see he's already gone into politician mode. Hey, guys, can't, don't you know how great this city is? Don't you know how unquestionable the reputation of Artemis is? Really trying to downplay what Paul had been doing here. All right, take a look at it. In verse 37, let's continue. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro They can press charges. What he's trying to get them to know is, look, these guys didn't actually do anything. Your, your grievance is with Paul. These guys are guilty by association here, and you've brought them in to the theater now, the amphitheater, and you are upset at them. He actually, notice how he says, uh, if... The, if they have a grievance, Demetrius and his craftsmen, the courts are open, there are pro-councils, they can press charges. Um, he, he's really probably the first person in history who stands up and says, you know, if you have a problem, there's a proper form to fill out. Uh, just fill it out in triplicate, and uh, we'll be processing it as soon as we can. Um, verse 39. If there is anything for, further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assemb- assembly as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. At the very end, he's speaking about something that actually plays into the history of Ephesus. There had actually already been two events at their time that created kind of a riot atmosphere in Ephesus. Now, they were ruled by the Roman Empire, so uh, there were certain rules they needed to follow, and they needed to keep some type of order and peace. By its nature, the Roman Empire was not an empire that came in and attacked. I know in our Christian word often we talk about the Roman guards and, and uh, these type of characters, but the Roman Empire was not one that came in and dominated by attacking. They often came in and they put their culture into play and they put their money systems into play and that's how they started to take over cultures. And so they valued peace. But here we find out that uh, there, was a couple, there was a couple instances before, and this would have been another instance. And he says, we, we would have no way to account for it. We would have nothing. What are we going to tell them when they say, why did this happen in your area? These are the words that, that did it, because in verse 41 it says, after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So the assembly heard what they wanted to hear, and they went away. When you want to follow here, we know as we've been talking this morning, things will come up. But when you follow here, God will provide a way. God will help us when we follow. Everything else we talked about this morning so far about following, you could line up any secular industry and you could say the same things are true about any other organization. But when you get to this last one, it is unique to us. You see, in the end, what we are saying is our faith in God will take over and God will provide. God will answer. God will take the faith of our following and he will pave the way for whatever we need. 
Now, I know for us this morning, we're probably not standing in a theater where people are yelling and shouting at us. I know uh, every once in a while you get in situations where it feels like that. But what other things? You know, maybe it's a financial situation that just seems to be barking at you, just yelling at you. Or maybe it's a job situation, and you go day after day, and you're, you're putting in the applications, and it's just nothing. Or maybe at your job you currently have, it's just, man, you just beg every day to be out of it. Maybe it's in your relationship, in your marriage. Maybe it's a struggle, day after day. And you're committed, you stay together, you're, maybe you're better than most, you even say. But it's not what you want it to be. You're smart enough to fill in the blanks for other areas, things that come against us, just like the group that came against Gaius and Aristarchus. The thing that makes us unique when we talk about what does it take to follow, the things that make it unique for our belief in Christ is that there's one that will pave a way. It's what his word promises. So this morning, if you're one that, uh, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, this morning, if you're one that you say, man, that mentoring thing, that lines up with me. I need to find a mentor. I need to find somebody that I can latch on to, learn about and grow in whatever it is I do or grow in my marriage or, or whatever it is. I need to latch on to something. Maybe you're one that says, hey, I just understand there's risk involved when I follow something. I may come up against something that, I may come up against somebody who doesn't, who doesn't just line up with my beliefs and, and, or line up with what I'm doing and I'm okay with that. I understand. I'm going to stand strong. But in this last area, you might have had a hard time just saying, I'm going to trust that God has a way. I'm going to trust that he's going to provide. He's going to provide an avenue. He's going to provide the finances. He's going to provide the right job situation. He's going to move me from job to another. God is so interested in fixing my marriage and healing my marriage and taking it to a great place. All these things, if you've struggled in that area with just receiving that, you have the opportunity this morning to just go before God and say, God, I want to I talk to you about my following. I've struggled in the area of just trusting that you're going to provide a way as you did for Gaius and Aristarchus. Now, if you look at this story, this is kind of an odd way. I think if you were drawing up the story and you were writing it, you might have uh, you know, uh, a story about you know, an army coming and wiping out or you know, some explosion that eliminated the bad guys and the good guys were left standing. That's what our, our movies show. But this is kind of an odd way of somebody coming in and talking about from a legal standpoint uh, what we would be in danger of, so let's not go there and everybody takes off and guys and Aristarchus are okay. Whatever it takes, however creative, God will provide a way. And you, need to, you might need to just go before God and say, God, I want to claim you again in this area. Here's the reality. For many of us that are Christ believers, we often don't claim this. We often don't just stop and say, God, I trust you. I'm not going to stress. I'm not going to worry. I'm going to do what you want me to do, but I'm just going to trust that you're going to take care of it. You're going to provide a way out for me. It's not a cliche. It's not a, a flippant little phrase. It's the word. It's the truth of what God has to share with us. So can I just take a moment to pray for you, um, and we'll finish off this morning. And if this morning in this prayer time, maybe you just need to go before God and say, God, I'm a follower. God, I'm a follower. And I'm okay with a couple of those areas, but I've struggled in this last thing. And Father, I just want to go before you and talk with you. I want to give you time. Even though I'll be speaking in the prayer, you just share your own words to God. He can hear us both. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a story about uh, uh, about these this town and this this issue um, and these traveling companions of Paul who were willing to give up their life to follow and to learn to be mentored and Lord give up what they thought might be their lives to to stand strong for what you were calling them to be about spreading your word and so Lord this morning I know that for a group this size I know they're going through struggles I know that there's things that sometimes will battle uh, make them battle in their following of you and trusting Lord that you are a God who is willing to provide if you this morning you just feel that way where you're just you're just saying God please provide Lord we want to pray for you we want to be praying for you. Will you just let us know? Maybe even on the card in front of you, you could just write your name and what it is you're praying for, what it is God needs to provide. And God, we ask that you would be the provider. Just like for Gaius and Aristarchus, you provided an exit door, a, door, a way they were able to get out of the troubles they were dealing with. And Father, you will do the same for us as we're willing to follow and trust in you. And so this morning, Lord, we claim that and we want to live that. We pray in your son's name. Amen.